Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, I speak with the people doing interesting things in pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic medicine. Today, my guest is Dr. Jonathan Dudley. Dr. Dudley is a pathologist specializing in molecular genetics. And today on the show, we'll talk a little bit about his background. We'll talk quite a bit about his research in molecular genetics utilizing cell-free DNA. And we'll talk a bit about a few of the awards he's won as a result of this research. Now, here's Dr. Jonathan Dudley. Okay, so the Pathologist Magazine just recently came out with their power list for 2020, and it's uh, 100 people of influence in the pathology field. And this year there's four categories, and you're on the list for the big breakthroughs category. This is the, the first time they've done these, these four categories, and, and you're on there. So I'm curious, how, does that, how did that process work? Like, Did you know that you had been nominated for this? Well, uh, they did send an email before they released the list saying I had been nominated. So I guess I knew from that. And you're on the, you're on the list too. Am I, am I correct? Under lab years. There are quite a few PAs on the list this year, but, uh, I'm not, next not one, year. Yeah. Hopefully. Year. hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> That's got to feel great to be on that list though, especially this, the first time they've done these categories. How, do, how does that feel for you for, to be recognized like that? Yeah, it's always great to have recognition for research you're doing. So yeah, it's a big honor. And uh, I like how they broke it down this year with with different categories, including uh, PAs and, you know, people doing social media and uh, clinicians. Um, I think it's a great way of recognizing people across pathology making contributions. Yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely an interesting twist that they did this year. And we're going to get into the research that you did to get you recognized on that list a little bit later. I wanted to go back, though, and start with your little bit about your training in pathology and molecular genetics. But first, though, how did you initially become interested in pathology as a career? Well, uh, even before going into medical school, I knew I wanted to do mainly medical research. And so in thinking about different specialty options, I really kind of evaluated them based on how well they would fit with a research career. And pathology was really great because the skills you learn in pathology residency training are directly useful in research. So right now I'm doing full-time research and every day I'm looking at things under the microscope and interpreting them using my pathology training. I also did, uh, so I did anatomic pathology residency and they did a fellowship in molecular genetic pathology. Um, and there you learn how to design sequencing assays and interpret sequencing data. Um, and I use that as well in my research. So in, in some ways, it's almost like a, uh, doing a PhD um, in a particular field where you gain a lot of skills that are clinically valuable and can allow you to act as a clinician. But that also help you a lot. In, in a wide range of research areas. Do you do much uh, clinical work these days or is it mostly research? Well, right now I do 100% research. In the future, I may do a little bit of clinical work uh, just in molecular genetic pathology, but right now it's pure research. And your, your training, it was I, I was reading a little bit of your bio. You kind of went East Coast to West Coast to back to East Coast. Was that just finding the programs that had the best fit for you? 
part of it was coordinating things with my wife, who's also in medicine. Mm -hmm. Uh, she's a radiation oncologist. And so, so I ended up going to MGH for anatomic pathology training. She ended up matching at Stanford for radiation oncology residency. And so for a year, um, I was in Boston, she was in uh, Palo Alto. And so then I transferred out to Stanford for my last year of training, just to reunite with her. And I finished my clinical training there. Oh, okay. Do, do the two of you talk shop a lot? I mean, I got to think a lot of what you do has implications for radiation oncology. Yeah, yeah, we do a little bit. She she gets kind of bored when I talk about my research, but um, <laughs> we uh, we do talk about clinical questions a fair amount. She'll, you know, sometimes she'll ask me about a particular pathology diagnosis, and she'll she'll I'll ask her about different treatment possibilities. Um, so yeah, we do we do. I mean, we both do cancer stuff. We do occasionally talk about clinical questions. You mentioned that even before medical school, you were interested in pathology. What was it that made you interested in molecular genetics? And like what sort of what particular areas did you want to go into? Well, I would say before med school, I wasn't interested in pathology so much as just research. Oh, okay. um, it was really my second, second year of med school that I discovered pathology and thought it would fit really well with research. When I when I realized that pathology seemed to be a really cool field that fit well so well with doing a research career uh, in my second year of med school, then I arranged to do a pathology elective very early in medical school um, in my third year. And in that elective, I rotated through a number of areas. Um, I spent four weeks in autopsy and then rotated through neuropathology dermatopathology, molecular pathology, and I think clinical chemistry, or maybe the, the last week, I think was just like a variety of different CP areas. Okay. Uh, but I really, I really liked molecular genetic pathology. That was uh, at Hopkins where I did the rotation. Um, the, the faculty were very uh, engaged and did a great job teaching. And it just seemed like a, an area that was going to be increasingly important. I'd always like chemistry in undergrad, and it's kind of an area where you're kind of thinking about different chemical processes and um, how to how to optimize different reactions. And so, really, you know, at the beginning of my third year of med school, I kind of decided I wanted to do molecular genetic pathology, and pretty much have focused on that ever since. Um, I did some research during med school in molecular pathology with Ming, Ming Shay Lin, who's the director of the molecular pathology lab at Johns Hopkins, as well as uh, James Eshelman. Okay. Uh, then I went to MGH and I worked with John Iafredi, uh, who's the director of molecular pathology over there and just a great clinician scientist. And then finally came back, came out to Stanford and worked with actually a radiation oncologist, Max Dean, but someone who's done some very cutting edge molecular genetic assay development stuff around uh, cell-free DNA analysis. Well, let's get into what cell-free DNA it is. This There's a lot of uh, okay. work being done uh, with this, especially now. Can we kind of explain what that is? Sure. Yeah. So 
it's just DNA that is free floating outside of cells. It's thought to be released um, into the blood or the urine or other fluids in the body through either, uh, well, through cell death broadly, primarily through cell death. So it could be through a process called necrosis mm -hmm. uh, or apoptosis, two different ways cells can die. A little bit is thought to be released by uh, active secretion from normal cells as well, but mostly from dying cells. The reason it's an interesting area is because it's not so much the cell-free DNA, it's the specific markers you can look at. So most biomarkers traditionally for cancer detection, like prostate or uh, colon and other things like that have been proteins. And proteins are not causally related to, to cancer. So they're, they're effects of the cells becoming cancerous and they begin secreting more proteins. But they don't they don't cause the cells to be cancerous. But the thing about the DNA is that what causes cancer is specific mutations in the DNA. Mm -hmm. So looking at those mutations and using those as a as a marker for the presence of the cancer turns out to be much more specific than looking at proteins. Okay. Now it turns out that you know if you look at if you look at super high levels of of proteins, which our current lab has done, that becomes more specific as well. But but in general, the idea is that if you can look at a biomarker that is causally related to the disease of interest, it will be more specific than a biomarker that's merely associated with that disease, but that doesn't actually cause it. So in looking at cell-free DNA for cancer, um, you sequence it and you look for mutations in genes that are known to cause cancer. Okay. That's the most common way, at least. So So you're looking for known mutations. Right. For the most part, yeah. Okay, and is this the the so called liquid biopsy that I've that I've heard about? Yes. One of the main ways that cell free DNA is used is for screening for cancer. Is that is that right? Yeah, there are a few different areas where it's used. Screening for cancer is probably the the hardest and perhaps least developed area right now. Okay. So it can be used for uh, characterizing the spectrum of mutations in a cancer that the patient's already known to have. So if a patient has like a stage four lung cancer and you want to know if they could respond to targeted therapy, um, sometimes instead of getting a biopsy of the tissue or in, in, in addition to it, you could take a blood draw and just sequence the DNA in the blood uh, to look for mutations that may predict response to the to particular therapies. Okay. So that's that's the category of like genotyping the tumor. Uh, sometimes it's used to see after you've treated a patient if the disease has been cured. So if you know the these mutations from the patient's tumor, uh, from previously sequencing the patient's tumor or or the blood pretreatment, and then you treat the patient, you can look in the blood to see if those mutations are still present. And if they are still present, that suggests that tumor is still present, even if it can't be detected by radiology or other modalities. So that's the application of minimal residual disease. Mm, okay. And probably the most exciting and you know most active area of investigation is screening for cancer, and that's what the lab I'm in currently is focusing on. And that's very challenging because the test has to be even more specific because if you're applying it to people who are not known to have cancer, 
and it, it's not specific enough, then the vast majority of your positive test results will be false positives. Um, and that can lead to workup that, that costs a lot of money and may cause complications. Um, so it needs to be very specific uh, for cancer. Once this gets more advanced, do you foresee this being sort of a replacement for, you know, actual in biopsies, like tissue biopsies, because it's far less invasive? Or is that is it too far out to even think about that? Well, I think in some contexts, it has replaced tissue biopsies. So for example, if a patient's being treated, a patient with lung cancer is being treated with a targeted EGFR therapy, uh -huh. and they stop responding, clinicians will often send their blood to test for a specific mutation in EGFR um, that commonly causes a lack of response. And if they detect that mutation in the blood, then that can be a basis to switch the therapy uh, to a new therapy that the patient is more likely to respond to. If they don't detect it in the blood, then they'll typically, or they'll often do a follow-up biopsy to make sure they didn't miss it just because you know, the blood's much, the tumor DNA is going to be much more dilute in the blood than in a biopsy. Mm -hmm. So um, that's one area where it's kind of reduced uh, biopsies in the context of treatment resistance. I think ultimately, you know, it's probably better, uh, especially when a patient is newly diagnosed with cancer, to determine the mutations in the tumor from the tissue itself, because that will almost always be present at a much higher fraction. Um, when you use the blood, it's going to be more dilute. And so there's a possibility of missing mutations that may, may not be the dominant mutation in the tumor, but maybe a minor component. So I think you, you can always have more confidence in the uh, mutations that, that you've seen all the relevant mutations if you look at the tissue itself. But there are some contexts where it could be, it could uh, reduce the number of biopsies. Mm -hmm. Okay. You mentioned the term uh, minimal residual disease, and I've also seen uh -huh. the term molecular residual disease. Does that mean the same thing? Well, yeah, kind of. I guess minimal residual disease is, I guess I would refer to just the patient has tumor remaining. Okay. And molecular residual disease would mean the patient has whatever molecular biomarker you're using for the tumor remaining. So I guess in some cases, those might not totally overlap. So if the patient has tumor remaining, but the biomarker you're looking at isn't present for whatever reason, maybe it's too dilute or maybe um, they stop making that biomarker, then you could have minimal residual disease, but not molecular residual disease. Okay. But but the, it's very similar similar idea for both. Okay. Another term here, we've been talking about cell-free DNA, and then there's also circulating tumor DNA, which that's a type of mm -hmm. cell-free DNA. Is that is that accurate? Yeah. Yep. So cell-free DNA is just any DNA, whether tumor or non-tumor, that's present outside of cells. Um, and that can be in any fluid, any bodily fluid, blood, urine, cerebrospinal fluid, ascites. Uh, so circulating tumor DNA specifically refers to DNA released from the tumor itself that's present in the blood or in the plasma. 
So, so yeah, circulating tumor DNA is just a one specific type of cell-free DNA. And it's probably the most commonly analyzed type. You know, it's most commonly analyzed right now. You mentioned the different fluids that you can find cell-free DNA, and you've done some work with urine tumor DNA, which is something I, I hadn't heard of before. Is this a fairly new technology? Well, it's just cell-free DNA that's in the urine. So turns out to, to be a good uh, source of material for detecting bladder cancer because you're looking at a fluid, the urine, that, that the tumor is directly interfacing with. Um, and so the, the concentration of the d DNA from the tumor is higher in the urine than it is in the blood. So yeah, urine tumor DNA, as we use it in our paper, just refers to uh, cell-free DNA in the urine that was produced by a bladder cancer. Okay. Can we kind of go through your, your paper and the, and the research that you did there with bladder yeah, cancer? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I, I worked on that paper with uh, Max Dean and Ash Elizabeth. Max, as I mentioned, is a radiation oncologist at Stanford. Uh, Ash Elizabeth uh, is a hematologist and oncologist, medical oncologist at Stanford. So they're both physician scientists and they co-run a lab that had developed when I, when I arrived at Stanford, a very sensitive workflow for detecting tumor DNA in the blood. Okay. And so what I wanted to do was to modify that workflow and re-optimize it so that you could use it to, to detect tumor DNA in the urine. To do that required surmounting a number of challenges. Um, so typically when you extract cell-free DNA from the blood, you'll work with maybe, you know, anywhere from two to, to 10 mils of, of blood. Whereas in the urine, a typical void of urine might be 200, 250 mils. Mm, sure. And so it required thinking about how to extract DNA from a much larger volume. And it's it required kind of working out and adapting an approach that could that could be used with big volumes of fluid. So uh, the the spectrum of DNA fragments in in the urine is also different than in the blood. In the blood, most of the cell-free DNA is between about 150 and 250 base pairs, whereas in the urine, it's a much broader spectrum of sizes. And so that poses some challenges for many approaches uh, to sequencing the DNA. So I had to work out an approach that would convert that DNA to a more homogeneous size spectrum, uh, which I did with enzymatic fragmentation. Okay. And then we, we sequenced the DNA and turned out there are some informatic uh, challenges as well associated with the approach we took to analyzing cell-free DNA in the urine. And I worked with a uh, current medical oncology fellow at Stanford, uh, Dr. Joseph Shores-Martin. Uh, and he really re-optimized the, the pipeline, the informatic pipeline that the lab had been using on blood uh, so that it could also analyze DNA in the urine. And so the first part of the paper is really just developing this approach to analyze tumor DNA in the urine. And the second part of the paper we show, uh, and we look at two different groups of patients. One was a group of patients with early stage bladder cancer. So these were all patients with biopsy confirmed uh, early stage bladder cancer. 
And then we looked at a control group that were roughly the same age and same smoking status. And we wanted to ask, how well would this, this workflow work to detect early stage bladder cancer? And uh, in that group, I think we've, we detected about 84% or so of the, the patients with, with uh, maybe, I think there's one control that was positive. So the sensitivity was about 84%, specificity was 97%, I believe. Then the second group of patients we looked at were patients with a history of bladder cancer who were undergoing surveillance or recurrent disease. And so in that context, we wanted to ask if we could detect minimal residual disease. And so we, we sequenced DNA from the, the urine of these samples, and then we just followed them over time to see which ones developed recurrent disease or which ones remained disease-free for a time period. I think it was a year. And we, we looked to see, you know, did we detect the ones that recurred uh, and not the ones that didn't recur? And I think we had similar performance in that context. Um, we detected about 80-some percent of the ones that, that developed recurrent disease. Um, and only uh, one, I believe, of the patients that did not recur within the study time. Okay. And also in the paper, I think you compared your results to what's, uh, to results from just cytology analysis of the urine alone, right? Correct. Yeah. So in, in looking for early stage bladder cancer, cytology is not really able to detect low-grade cancers. About half of the cancers in the, the screening context we looked at were low-grade. Okay. Uh, and cytology didn't detect any of those, if I recall correctly. Um, and then for high-grade cancers, it, it didn't do that well either, probably because these were earlier stages. Across that group, the sensitivity of cytology, I believe, was uh, 14%. So we detected about six times more cases uh, than cytology, which is currently the standard of care for the non-invasive diagnosis of early stage bladder cancer. Mm -hmm. Cytology does have very good specificity. So if it's positive by cytology, it almost always means the patient truly does have cancer. Our, our specificity was comparable. We did have one false positive, but... It was statistically um, similar to cytology. Uh, cytology did better in the surveillance group we looked at. Um, there, I think the sensitivity was in the 30s, uh, mid-30s. And I think there, that's because the patients typically had bigger tumors. But even in that context, we were able to improve quite a bit on cytology, um, you know, from 30 for cytology to the 80s percent sensitivity for us. It's interesting. Uh, we also improved quite a bit on cystoscopy, which is when, when patients have bladder cancer, they're treated for it. And then to, to detect it, if it recurs, the patients at regular intervals, I think it's every six months, um, will have cytology done on the urine and they'll have cystoscopy done where uh, basically a video camera is inserted through the urethra into the bladder to visually look around for recurrent tumors. So that's a fairly expensive and uncomfortable procedure for patients. Right. And we've, we found that, uh, and, and the sensitivity in our study for detecting recurrent cancer was only in the 30%. So our approach, which is non-invasive, turned out to be much better than cystoscopy as well. Oh, wow. Um, so it's 
it's something that could potentially reduce the need to do that that procedure in detecting recurrent bladder cancer. Okay. Uh, now, I know you use this specifically for bladder cancer. Do you think this would also work for, say, kidney cancer? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. I think it probably would. Um, I think it's less it's less obvious that urine would be better than blood for kidney cancer. I think you would just need to take patients who have kidney cancer and compare the levels of tumor DNA in urine versus blood. But I think it probably would work for kidney cancer. It could have the advantage. One advantage of urine is that you can just get way more cell-free DNA because you can just get bigger volumes of, of fluid. Mm. So, yeah, no, I think that's that's a great question. Some people, there, ha there have been some preliminary studies looking at it, but I don't think there have been any really large studies yet on that question. But, yeah, I think it, I think it would work. Another another area where people have looked at it is for prostate cancer. Oh, sure. Um, and that, yeah, that there, again, it's not entirely clear to me whether it would be better than, than blood. Only a fairly small part of the prostate directly interfaces with the urine. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I could see blood turning out to be better. Uh, but that's another area people have looked at. And there have been some studies showing that, at least in some patients, you can detect tumor DNA in the urine from prostate cancer. You mentioned a, a few times about the sequencing. Now, this is the the next generation sequencing is what it's called, right? Um, and I know you, yeah. you've used this in other areas too, pancreatic brushings and other things like that. Can you explain a little bit of how, how that works? Yeah. Um, so sequencing next generation sequencing it's um so basically what you do uh there are, there are a few different ways to do it probably the most commonly used approach which is what we used in our our paper on bladder cancer you take the dna um you ex and that you've extracted from the patient's blood and you attach molecules to each end of the dna that allow it to bind to a sequencing machine so the first step is to attach these molecules to the ends of the DNA. Then after that, you usually do PCR on the DNA to make lots of copies of each individual molecule so that you don't um, lose those unique molecules in later steps of your workflow. And then you typically do some sort of step to enrich for regions you're most interested in. Okay. Otherwise, you'd just be doing whole genome sequencing, which people do do, but uh, it's, it's harder to sequence very deeply with that. Mm -hmm. And so um, for our paper, for example, we designed a set of probes for regions commonly mutated in bladder cancer. And so to, to enrich for genes mutated in bladder cancer, so we had um, single-stranded uh, single pieces of DNA, about 70 base pairs long that are attached to a molecule called the biotin. And you mix the, your DNA with the, with the molecules that allow it to bind to the sequencing machine with these probes. And uh, your DNA denatures, so it becomes single-stranded. And then any regions that are complementary to those probes will bind them. And then you put in magnetic beads that are coated with streptavidin, and that will bind the biotin on the probes. And now the probes are are bound are hybridized to DNA regions you're interested in. 
So you can pull out the regions you're interested in, just sequence those regions. And so that, that was the approach we used uh, to, to enrich for regions of interest. You can also enrich for them by designing primers for those regions and doing PCR. Okay. But um, yeah, so that allowed us to, to really focus in on the genes that are most important for bladder cancer. Okay. And about how long does, uh, does this process take? Uh, well, the approach we use, the process uh, from starting with the initial sample to getting it on the sequencing machine would take about a week, uh, so about five days of work. Oh, wow. And that's that's not uh, – the, the actual hands-on time for that process is not, you know, every day for five days. It's – the actual hands-on time uh, for a given sample may be, may be the equivalent of one full day of work. Uh, but there are certain steps where you just have to, to leave it sit. So the longest step is the target enrichment step, mm -hmm. uh, at least for what we did. And in that case, uh, it took three, we, we had to incubate the DNA with the probes for three days. That's still, that's quite a bit faster than the, the old way of, of doing it. I think it was the Sanger technique or something like that. Well, it's just that the, uh, it's not necessarily faster. It's just this with the Sanger uh, sequencing approach, it um, it's hard to interpret if the DNA is if the DNA you're interested in is too dilute. So typically, you can't really see. So if you had a sample of tumor DNA, it would have to be at least twenty percent tumor DNA for you to be able to detect it. And so that makes it not very useful for most samples for the purposes of tumor DNA detection because it's almost always less than twenty percent. Um, it also has much lower throughput, so it's harder to sequence really big regions with Sanger sequencing. So those are two advantages. It can it can be done quickly, uh, but it is not sensitive enough. It doesn't have a low enough limit of detection to detect tumor DNA in um, almost all clinical samples, and it's and it's hard to analyze big you know. Uh, tens of thousands of base pairs with that approach. Oh, sure. Okay. That makes, that makes so, so we talked about uh, some of the research that you've done. Uh, the the research for bladder cancer. You were for this. You were awarded the Young Investigator Award from uh, the Association for Molecular Pathology, and also the Benjamin Castleman Award from USCAP. What were these experiences like? Did you have to? Was it just submitting your paper? Or did you have to make a poster? Or how, how did that go? Well, for the Association of Molecular Pathology, that was in 2018, mm. and that was before my paper was published. Oh, okay. And I, I just, I made a poster, and then I also gave an oral presentation at the conference. For the the award specifically, there were judges that went around to different posters, and you presented the poster to them, and then they decided separately amongst themselves who to give the award to. Okay. And so they announced that at the end of the day. And then for the, the Castleman Award, uh, that's uh, a scenario where um, you're nominated based on the paper. So the nominator just submits the paper. Oh, okay. And then it's just a separate committee that looks at the papers. Uh, the Castleman Award is named after a uh, former chair of the pathology department at Massachusetts General Hospital, Benjamin Castleman who described uh, Castleman's disease. 
but uh, yeah, in any case, so so that's that was just done by a, a separate committee, and then um, I got an email. Uh, I think three or four months before the USCAP conference, uh, with a letter mm-hmm. saying that that they had selected my paper for the award, and so I went to the conference to receive that award. Did would you were you planning on on going to the conference? Or did you have to like quickly make travel plans? <laughs> well, they gave me a pretty big heads up. So it was, I think it maybe even four or five months oh, wow. before the conference. They told me. And so I, I probably would not have gone to it otherwise, but I, I did go when um, I learned that I had won the award. It, it's kind of funny because last year it was in either Bal- I think it was in DC last year by DC. Next year it's in Baltimore, but the year I went to get the award, it was in LA. Oh, um, so I live in Baltimore, so it'd been super convenient right. <laughs> if it had been either of the, those other years. But yeah, so I flew out to LA. This was actually right right on the cusp of the coronavirus taking off in the U.S. Oh. Um, so I kind of made it back just in time. Oh, yeah, that's and right. And everything started shutting down um, right after the conference. So <laughs> That's right. Wow. Good timing, I guess. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about molecular genetics and molecular pathology, and this is an area that's been expanding for several decades now, and, and it continues to grow and it continues to be used. You know, one thing, though, that I wanted to ask you about, because, you know, I'm a pathologist assistant and we work with the actual tissue. And, uh, you know, I asked the question about if it was going to replace, you know, if the liquid biopsy was going to replace uh, actual tissue biopsy. So I'm glad that's not happening yet. What are some other ways do you think that the use of molecular pathology will expand in the future? Well, um, one of the areas that I'm doing research on is right now. Okay. So, so my research is really focused on applying, developing new molecular assays and strategies to analyze pathology specimens. And typically, when you do molecular analyses on tissue samples, it's typically in tissue that has known tumor in it. So you know the patient has cancer and you submit a chunk of cancer uh, to have the DNA extracted and you're looking for mutations that can predict response to treatment. So that's that's typically, that's the most common approach um, when you're doing molecular analyses on, on tissue samples. Uh-huh. But my, my research really wants to ask a different question, which is, does this tissue or cytology sample have cancer in it in the first place? And if so, what kind of cancer is it? So it's less about detecting mutations that could predict response to treatment in patients who you already know have cancer and more about asking, does this patient have cancer in this tissue sample to begin with? And if so, what kind of cancer is it? So, yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, in terms of the pathology assistant, I don't know. I mean, I I think it has probably reduced biopsies a little bit, but Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't think it. Molecular testing will have too big of an impact. I think that analyzing tissue, like if if you're trying to figure out what mutations the patient's tumor has, analyzing tissue, if you can get it, will always be better than doing a liquid biopsy, just because the tumor DNA will be present at a much higher uh, fraction. In you know, if you're looking at a chunk of tumor, than if you're just looking in the blood at all the DNA. So I think it's still 
will be the gold standard. And you have to, you know, even if samples were kind of ground up and you just sequence the DNA instead of even looking at slides, uh, which I don't think will happen anytime soon, uh, you still need to, you know, have the right chunks from the specimen that to, to know what you're analyzing and where it's located and to have the spatial information. Yeah, I don't know that will change that much in terms of how the actual tissue is processed. Okay, that's good to hear. Right. <laughs> this has been very interesting. Thanks for thanks for hosting me. I appreciate your your interest and questions. Oh, awesome! Thank you. Uh, and yeah, Doctor Jonathan Dudley, thanks for thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Big thanks to Dr. Dudley. Now, if you want to learn more about some of the things we talked about today, go to the website, look at the show notes. I have links to everything that we talked about with Dr. Dudley. And that's peopleofpathology.podbean.com. And you can also follow the show on Twitter at People of Path. Of course, remember to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Podbean. And we're also on Stitcher now. And if you know someone who might be interested in this episode, maybe you know someone who's interested in genetics and molecular biology, please share the show with them. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. I'm a member and the CFO of the American Association of Pathologist Assistants. This show does not necessarily represent the views of the AAPA and receives no financial support from the AAPA. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.